to season two of Writers Festival Radio. Thank you for listening. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library for their collaboration in our second virtual season. The new season has begun and it's all available online at writersfestival.org. So all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming. I want to thank you in advance for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Now, let's listen to author and educator Julie S. Lalonde in conversation with Amanda LeDuc about her acclaimed novel, The Centaur's Wife. Amanda has cerebral palsy, lives in Hamilton, Ontario, and works as the communications coordinator for the Festival of Literary Diversity. Last year, she published a nonfiction book, Disfigured, on fairy tales, disability, and making space. Her latest, The Centaur's Wife, just out this month, is her second novel, This book is part family drama, part survival story, a dash of post-apocalyptic fiction, and more than a little fairy tale. It's a story about storytelling, a meditation on survival and trauma, and an exploration of community and individuality. We'll start with a taste of the prose and then listen to the conversation between Julie and Amanda. So it came to pass that the father and his children spent the rest of their days on the mountain. After a while, the father stopped dreaming about his two-legged children running in the village, and eventually, long years later, he dreamed less of his wife. His children grew happy and strong, for they'd known no other life. Though sometimes a rage would break in them, and the father would be reminded of his wife, his human love, whose anger had erupted like a volcano, whose rage still burned bright at his betrayal. Other times, the fierceness of their anger would remind the father of himself and the dark things he harbored, the grief that never went away. He tried to be gentle with them when they raged, but the children grew wary of their own anger, the same way they grew wary of their father's love for them and the way he so jealously guarded their home. When their father died, after many more years, they buried him beneath the three willows and wept over his grave, then slept there, sprawled beneath the stars. The next morning, when the sun came up, new beings pulled themselves out of the dirt where their father had been, beings that also had the heads and arms of humans and the strong bodies of horses. When the children looked at all of these new siblings, they saw the mountain's own glimmering anger in their deep and darkened eyes, and understood that though the mountain had taken their father back and given the children companions so that they would not be alone, it had also not forgotten their father's betrayal in leaving the mountain so long ago. It had given them a gift, but also a warning. And that is how the centaurs came to be. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Amanda. Thank you for having me, Julie. It's a real pleasure to be here speaking with you. So I got to start by saying I absolutely adored your book. It was so good. It hit me from the first word. I was like dying to know how it ended. It's so good. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Also, I mean, I have to state the obvious. This is you have now had to promote two books in the context of the pandemic. I have. (laughs) Yes. So how has that journey been? 
Um, I mean, it's it's definitely been interesting, right? I, I had a little window of time last year when Disfigured came out because Disfigured came out on the 11th of February and we sort of shut down things right at the beginning of March. So there was about three weeks when I got to do in-person things and I got to go to New York for a reading, which was fabulous. And it was the last in-person reading I feel like I will ever do now. I'm sure I'm sure that will change in the future. Uh, but you know, it, it's it's definitely been a journey, um, and there have been different feelings that have come about as a result of it. I think, you know, there was obviously resignation at the beginning, and you know, speaking from the disability community, I obviously wanted to make sure that. I was doing all of the right things when it came to the pandemic. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't, you know, going and traveling and doing a whole bunch of stuff for the book when it really wouldn't have been advisable to do so. And I was thinking initially, okay, well, we'll be able to start doing some things in the fall. We'll do in-person events. And of course that didn't happen. And then it was holding out for this one and thinking, okay, well, maybe we'll be doing things again in the spring slash early winter. And that has also not happened. And, you know, now we may be doing things in the summer, fall. We may not, I don't know. They are, are good and bad things to it. I mean, I, I love traveling for books and talking to different people about my stories. So I do miss that a lot. However, it is nice to be able to do everything from the comfort of my own home, right? Just sit down in front of the computer and have your sweatpants on all day. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's quite nice. <laughs> Certainly. And I mean, from the acknowledgements in your book, it's clear that you've been working on this book for a while now, but the time I mean you wrote a book about the end of the world and then it launched when people felt like we were looking at the end of the world and so how how has that process been like has it been a bit surreal to be to be kind of living this fiction and then real life example at the same time yeah <laughs> well I, I feel like the the bar for surreality if that's even a word I don't think it is but the bar for surreal has been set by Salima Nawaz right with her her book um, songs for the end of the world which was literally about a coronavirus which you know was launched into the world at the same time almost as, as COVID-19 um, but having said that uh, I, I do there have been some interesting similarities absolutely and I think again specifically for me from the disability perspective, it's been really interesting to look at and think about the different issues that are sort of embedded in The Centaur's Wife about accessibility, yes, but also just the wider awareness of what it means to have a different body in the world and what it means to isolate those different bodies. And then to see that message being, you know, twisted and uh, paraded around the world that we're living in right now with, you know, very little disregard in, in many ways for the disabled community has been a difficult thing to be honest to, to look at and see how you know you write things in fiction and you hope that your words will reach people in a variety of ways and and yet you look around and you see the same issues in the world right that, you, that you're trying to combat so it's been interesting and bittersweet in many ways uh I mean I, I'm also it's nice in a strange way to have a, a, a book out there that speaks to the world in this kind of way. Obviously, I would hope that it, you know, would speak to the world regardless of whether there's a worldwide pandemic raging on around us. But it, I think, I think it goes to show how speculative fiction in particular often has very real 
real world implications. We often think, you know, speculative fiction is just, you know, magic, fairy tales, spaceships, all these kinds of things. But they're always touching on themes that apply to the real world in which we are currently living. And that's something that I'm hanging on to as I start, you know, having more conversations about the book and, and looking at how this ostensibly very strange novel about centaurs and humans and a world that has been destroyed actually applies to the world in which we live in very particular ways. Yeah, and the other day I saw a tweet that you posted about the film Greenland, which is a dystopian movie starring Gerard Butler, who I clearly is just emerging from Iraq because I don't know where he's been for the past while, but <laughs> he just like emerged out of Greenland apparently. And you uh, tweeted that one of the most unrealistic things about the movie is that everyone is really kind to each other. <laughs> um, and in reading your book, one of the things that really struck me is the humanity of people which includes the fact that you know you're really challenging that idea that hardship builds character and grit and tenacity when it might for some people but for some people it makes them nasty it makes them mean it makes them selfish it makes them lash out at other people um and so was that like an intentional sort of message that you were putting in that or is it just for you you were like there was no other way to tell the story without talking about the variety of responses well, I think one of the things that I'm always interested in, in doing when I write fiction and, you know, delve into other characters' minds is this idea that we are none of us perfect, right? We all have things that make us stumble and second guess ourselves. And the idea of putting that in the context of a worldwide disaster was really fascinating to me, you know, because I think the fact of the matter is that no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we do say things like we're all in this together, yada, 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 we do all have moments of faltering and moments of being nasty and being upset. And when the worst parts of ourselves come out and that's also part of being human. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to shy away from that in the course of the book. One of the things actually I had an interview last week and I was talking with someone about the book and about Heather in particular as a character. And he was saying, you know, she's, she's, she's a bit of a piece of work. Like she's a bit of a pain in the rear end, as you say. And it's true. She is, but you know, she is that way because of various things that have happened around her. She is that way because of the fact that she's trying to survive and trying to help her family survive in the middle of this disaster. She is that way also because she's a disabled character who you know has been treated quite poorly by the people in the town where she's grown up and she has resentment around that that she hasn't quite let go of but I think it also in Heather's case allows her to see the world in a much more nuanced kind of way I think I don't know that it's realistic for us to look at someone and say, you know, these are your foibles and these are your good parts and you're going to work to overcome your foibles. And, you know, that is who you're going to be as a human being. I think we have to take each other at face value, all of us, which means, you know, the good and the bad. And I think that for me as a disabled writer writing about disability, that's also something that's really important for me to portray. Uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about how disabled people are often cast as villains in literature and that's true. And I think that's something that we need to work against. However, it also, you know, doesn't then mean that the responsibility is to write the disabled person as a saintly character like Tiny Tim, for example, right, in, in A Christmas mm -hmm. Carol, because that's also not realistic. Uh, these are real people with real flaws. And I really 
had to think hard about how your flaws and also the best of who you are come out in spades when you're put in the kind of pressure cooker situation that the characters in the novel are put in. And that is something that I think we have seen also in spades as we go through this pandemic, right? We see the best of people and we also see the worst of people at the same time. And one of the other balances that I thought you struck so brilliantly and so um, delicately almost like really wasn't you know driving it home but it was just like pulsing throughout the book was really that pushback against toxic positivity uh, and the idea of you know you just you have to look for the silver linings or we have to have to have to believe but yet your book was still very in my view very hopeful and so you know what was that balance like for you to really challenge characters like Tasha, for example, who are seen as just refusing to see the negative to the point of it, you know, falling into what I would view as, as a reader, as toxic positivity, that like good vibes only kind of idea, um, but yet still striking a chord of, of hope. Like I didn't feel deep despair in reading your book, but I did see like really strong commentary about uh, toxic positivity. And in particular, mm. not just in the context of like, you know, the world is literally on fire, but also like you said, in connection to how characters with disability are often viewed as like aspirational and like inspiration porn of like, look at what this person overcame. Um, and yet it was an able-bodied character that was the most obnoxiously, <laughs> yeah. like, think positive, think positive, think positive. Well, with Tasha in particular, I think for me, it was important, you know, to, to think about her. She's physically able-bodied in that she doesn't have a, a physical disability, but she does have, you know, a very severe case in, in many ways of, of PTSD in the novel, which I view as a disability in, in the course of the book itself. And I think is, is often viewed as a disability in the wider world as well. And I, I think, you know, for me, it was important to understand that her so-called toxic positivity was, you know, a, a coping mechanism for her to deal with these very deep-seated issues in her life that she hasn't really had an opportunity to, to reckon with head-on. She has a lot of grief that she's dealing with that, you know, hasn't been dealt with, if that makes sense. You know, she's carrying the death of her parents and, you know, the, the night terrors that she experienced as a child and the kind of trauma that that inflicted on her. And so, again, it's, you know, that, that nuance of, in this case, toxic positivity wasn't, you know, it's not something that totally encompasses who Tasha is as a human being. It's a tool that she's using to get over some very real issues in her life. And when I looked at it through that lens, you know, it, it was it was important for me. It always is important for me as a writer to be compassionate in looking at the, the humans and the people and the, the non-humans that I am writing about, whether they're centaurs or, or otherwise. And key elements of that compassion lie in recognizing, you know, the, the worst elements of somebody and the good elements of them at the same time. You talk in the acknowledgements about grief and grieving your dear, dear friend. And it was so clear to me in reading the book that you are someone who understands grief intimately. And what I found so powerful in, in sort of connecting Tasha, for example, was this recognition that people, you know, the cliche of people grieve in many ways, but also that people use coping mechanisms as long as they can work for them. And then they let them go when they're no longer serving them anymore and they move on to something else. And I think Tasha is a, is a perfect example of that. And so, you know, how important and how 
central was grief in the writing of this book or is it just me as a reader sort of reading mm -hmm. into that those pieces yeah so this is interesting because i started writing the novel in 2016 and my initial uh aim with the novel was to write a novel about desire I, I, you know, at the time when I was initially writing it, I had a crush on somebody that, you know, the, it couldn't move beyond a crush for a variety of different ways. And I was thinking about what it means to love someone that, that can't love you back um, or love something that, that can't love you back, which is sort of where my mind started going. And because I think the way that I do, I was like, oh, well, obviously this is about, you know, someone falling in love with a centaur because I just make those connections really quickly because my mind is very strange and weird and so I had been writing toward this idea of the book as desire right and Heather and Estefan and their relationship and the kinds of things that they want to happen but don't happen and, and that struggle and then I finished the book in October of 2019 and then my best friend passed away in December of that year and she had been ill for some time and I hadn't realized how bad things had gotten for her and when I so she passed away at the beginning of December. And then in January, I went back to the book. I was looking over sort of the final, you know, copy edits for it. And it, it just kind of hit me all at once that it, it had actually become a novel about grief. And I hadn't even realized it when I was writing that. Uh, but I, I think I was writing towards something that hadn't happened yet. And it was really important in the writing of the book to hold on to this idea of magic and this idea of things as not being fully resolved. Um, I mean, things, you know, the, the book does have an ending and, and it is resolved in some ways and also resolved or unresolved in others. And it was important to me looking back from that vantage point of realizing that the book had become about grief and, you know, doing little nitpicky things here and there to maybe bring that out. It was just important to acknowledge that grief really is a journey. And, you know, it is very much kind of, a thing that always remains unresolved and trauma in some ways remains unresolved, right? Um, mm -hmm. How do you, how do you move on as a human being in a way that pays homage to the fact that you never actually turn the last page of the book and shut it completely? Like you're always working with that sort of open sense of your story and your hurts and carrying them with you. And it just seems it feels very magical in, in some ways to me to, to realize that, you know, I was writing toward these things without even realizing that I was writing toward them. And then to look back on the finished book and, and say, wow, you know, this, it tries to do, the book tries to do a bunch of different things all at the same time. And I think leaving it unfinished, leaving that sense of things as not fully resolved and people are still struggling, you know, by the end of the book, um, not that that is much of a spoiler alert, but that was really important to me and really integral to having the book be the kind of book that it is to recognize that we're all continuing to move forward, even in very tiny little ways. But that doesn't mean that that things are ever really resolved, I think, in the ways that we might want them to be. So on the topic of magic, Amanda, why do we need to care about fairy tales? Well, 
The fairy tale element of the book actually came into place again at a later point. Uh, I actually finished writing Disfigured. So my nonfiction book, which came out last year, I finished that in the summer of 2019 and then went back to the centaur's wife and put the fairy tales in during that summer as well. And I had struggled with the centaur's wife for a while. There was something about it that just wasn't really fitting. And it was once I'd finished writing Disfigured and realized the connections between fairy tales and disability and how I, as a writer, have often turned to fairy tales as a way of understanding the world. It was then that I realized that the people of this town and the people in the novel are also going to be turning to fairy tales and folk tales as a way of understanding the world around them. And I don't, I really don't think it's a coincidence. And, you know, this is probably because of the, the way that my sort of academic brain has been working over the last couple of years in my writing brain. But I really don't think it's a coincidence that there has been a rise in interest in fairy tales and mythologies and kind of that, you know, gothic style of writing. You look at writers like Carmen Maria Machado oh, and her, oh, I love her so much. So and much. I think there's something to be said for those writings about magic and how that speaks to the world that we wish to have, the kinds of hope that we want to have, and also, you know, a world that we're struggling to make sense of at the same time, because fairy tales have always been a way to try and make sense of the world. And they do it through this sense of magic, right? Where there's a suspension of disbelief. You understand that right from the beginning to the end of the tale, you're talking about magical things. So they're things that aren't actually happening in the world. There's nothing in this tale that is ever actually going to happen in the real world in which we live but it's through understanding these narratives and these kinds of fictional triumphs with magic and all these kinds of unusual things wrapped in that we understand some really important truths about who we are in the world today and it, it really again doesn't surprise me to see more of these kinds of stories and these kinds of storytelling and these kinds of narratives coming out in the books that we read in the television that we watch in the movies that we're seeing there's so much more magic now coming out into things in that realm of speculative fiction right where people are imagining things really doing that work of envisioning a world that is possible um yeah i, I really don't think that it's a coincidence that we're in this kind of realm right now because we're searching for ways to make sense of the world. And in many ways, I think the realist world that we live in uh, has, has failed to provide those explanations. Yeah, absolutely. And it's why all of the best movies about masculinity are in space. <laughs> <laughs> because like men seem to, you know, men will watch a movie about men wrestling with masculinity if there's some sense of disbelief of like, oh, it's because he's in space that he's so introspective, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So I'm with you 100%. So I guess, what's next? I mean, you cranked out two books in a pandemic. So it's not like you haven't <laughs> been busy. So are you, yeah, are you working on anything new? Or are you wanting to take a break after this kind of book promo? Where are things at for you in your work? I'm really looking forward to getting back to writing. I actually didn't write a lot for most of 2020. Um, partly because of grief. I, I just really didn't feel like putting 
pen to paper. Um, and also because of, you know, the wider grief of the pandemic and everything that was going on, it was just really hard to focus. But I have had an idea in mind for a story over the last couple of years, a new novel. So I am, I've slowly started picking away at that. So I'm hoping, fingers crossed, to have something by that, something for that done by the end of the summer. And then, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I also have another nonfiction project in mind that is also going to be about grief and probably about my friend very much so. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to that. Uh, and we'll see, you know, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to what the year holds, even though we're, we're still in pandemic times. I, I think there's, there's lots to be hopeful for and lots to be optimistic about. So I'm, I'm hoping to write toward that. Awesome. Well, I cannot wait to read anything else you put out into the world. Centaur's Wife is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you so much, Julia. Again, it was a real pleasure to be here and I'm, I'm so pleased that you love the book. That was author and educator Julie S. Lalonde in conversation with Amanda LaDuke about her amazing novel, The Centaur's Wife. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. I also want to thank the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Carleton University, CBC, and CHUO for their ongoing support. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Listening.